A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from the world of literature, music and of course art and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Annika Yee, who creates installations and objects that sit on the borders of art and science. Drawing on research into biology and particularly macrobiotics, but embedded in geopolitics, Annika's work calls on a deep sensory engagement from the viewer with smell as important as sight. Infusing different categories of knowledge, she questions what she calls the increasingly hazy taxonomic distinctions between what is human, animal, plant and machine. Annika was born in 1971 in Seoul, South Korea, but came to the US as a child and lives and works in New York City today. Although she began studies in film theory at Hunter College in New York, she didn't complete them and neither did she do a degree in art, as we'll hear. So she came to art later than many artists, having her first solo exhibition in 2010. But since then, she hasn't looked back. Skype Sweater, one of her earliest pieces from 2010, reflects the complexity of her subjects, the arresting visual effects and the breadth of materials that she's used repeatedly over the past decade. It features a military parachute inflated by fans so that it appears to breathe, alongside three other sculptural elements, a see-through bag by the fashion house Longchamp filled with cow guts and hair gel, a block of soap with embedded rubber tubes and razor blades, and a plexiglass vitrine with a mylar pouch fried in tempura batter. Through this unusual combination of materials, Annika sought to allude to the biological movement of substances between tissues, but it was also a metaphor for the movement of people, and particularly a story of a woman who smuggled people from China to Chinatown in New York. These extraordinary combinations of objects and environments are a hallmark of her work. In Le Pain Symbiotique from 2014, she created a kind of sci-fi ecosystem, a PVC dome gathering industrial and organic elements. On the floor was bread dough mixed with ochre pigment, while on the plinth stood abstract glycerin soap paintings onto which were projected images of microorganisms. The presence of the yeast within the dough meant that the piece evolved over time, a recurring aspect of Annika's installations. You might say that she uses microbes as a medium. Among her most striking uses of bacteria was in a show at The Kitchen in New York in 2015, which has been interpreted as a comment on gender inequalities in the art world. It features a series of plastic quarantine tents, the kind that have taken on a global significance since the pandemic began, emblazoned with biohazard signs. Inside the tents were two specially created perfumes, one based on air taken from the Gagosian Gallery in New York, the other who smelled derived from samples taken from the mouths and vaginas of 100 women in Annika's network. Elsewhere in the show was a lightbox billboard in which the show's title, You Can Call Me F, was spelled out using the bacteria from those samples, which grew across the course of the show. 
Smell is another invisible medium for her. She treats the air as a cultural space filled with substances symbolic of political, social and environmental structures. She effectively sculpts the air around us. For her installation in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall in 2021, which she called In Love With The World, she created scents that evoke the long history of Bankside where the gallery stands, but also alluded to the COVID-19 crisis. She worked with the spices used to attempt to counteract another catastrophic pandemic, the medieval black death, as well as smells from geological eras, marine scents from the Precambrian period, the aromas of plants from the Cretaceous period. The smell was spicy, smoky and musky. The turbine hall was also filled with airborne sculptures she called air robes, which responded to the environment to determine their movements. They moved above the crowds at Tate Modern as Annika imagined the idea of human interaction with sentient machines. The air robes were hybrid beings, technologically constructed but evoking mushrooms and marine species like jellyfish. And this hybridity is everywhere. She's used seaweed as a skin for hanging lanterns that resemble chrysalises or seed pods inhabited by animatronic moths. The idea of a symbiosis of humans and non-human entities, whether natural or artificial, is at the core of her work. She sees her art as a means to define what life is and what life can be, as she puts it. Being an artist means you can push technology in ways that she says are completely unreasonable. And it's this with which I began our conversation. What does she mean by art's unreasonability? Well, you know, art kind of exists in a completely irrational, often illogical, often untenable realm. If you put it up against scientific principles, technological principles, principles of physics and, you know, all of these other kinds of, let's say, uh, empirically driven systems. And so what happens when you have this kind of this enmeshed, this entangled worlds of the irrational the almost kind of impenetrable, incomprehensible language. And then you have a language of transparency and some kind of empirical logic. And so I think that coming from the language of of art, it can be very, very positive to uh, imagine something that is not grounded in, let's say, you know, probable realities. And then some really interesting ideas can come forward. I think that what I meant by that statement that you quoted is really that you have to have imagination and you start from there and then you figure out how to logistically actualize ideas that come from an unfettered imagination. And can the sort of trigger for those realms of imagination that you access through the work be quite broad in the sense that obviously there's an an extraordinary material richness about your work and also this often discussed sort of sensory breadth can the work be triggered by something as apparently ephemeral as smell or a touch of a particular material or does it tend to start with more, more with text or something like that I think that there's no real consistent pattern I think that there's just so many infinite sensations that we experience even throughout what we would consider to be a day, you know, if you can measure time in a block of 24 hours. Uh, So there are infinite different points of entry and, and stimulation 
and sensations. And it's about uh, being able to pay attention to that and seeing how you can foreground or harness enough of these traces to maybe build on something uh, consciously. That's fascinating. And and then in terms of composition, that's something I wanted to ask you about as well, because Mm. one of the things I'm really struck by in the multi-sensory and multi-material pieces is that there must be a really interesting to and fro as you're composing them in terms of the way that they operate in space, but also the way that the individual elements sort of speak to each other, intertwine, etc. Can you say something about that compositional sense? I have to say that a lot of it is really springboarded with language. So sometimes I'll start from a very kind of almost like language-based narrative starting point where I write a backstory of what these odors, these aromas, these sensorial arrangements, what's the story? What is the character development? What are the, the, the textures, the landscape, the ecosystem? So there's a lot of vectors that I'm thinking about and considering all the different characters that are in play, but also the the backdrop, the environment, the foregrounded action and the background. So I start out with very sort of conventional language building. And then, of course, the smells don't really confine themselves to <laughs> conventional language per se, but you can use language to sort of kind of steer and, and let's say, demarcate lines where you want things to progress or go in different directions. And then in terms of those texts that you're talking about, those quite conventional language building that you refer to, mm. does that ever manifest itself as an accompanying text or does it disappear into the background once you've got the sort of physical materiality of the work? No, everything's in play at all times. So <laughs> we don't really throw things away in the studio. So when a certain kind of, let's say, text or even, you know, a conversation sounds really compatible, it shows up in lots of different ways. It will show up in a wall text. It'll show up in, in the catalog. It will show up in different ways. And more importantly, I think it, it definitely becomes a part of the piece in the way that I talk about it. It becomes embedded <laughs> in a way. And it's hard to dislodge because I'm already attached to the language. You know, ultimately, you know, when we experience a sensation of, of odors and aromas and we take in these molecules, we are immediately trying to signify what it is that we're smelling. And so our immediate you know, relationship to that smell is, is trying to stammer and stutter and give shape to language and, and words to what we're experiencing. It's a very involuntary experience, I think. It just happens. And then I wanted to explore how feminist theory infuses that in terms of, for instance... There's one specific work which you made for the kitchen in New York where you took samples, you asked 100 connected women to you to take samples and then that was pitched against a smell that you took from the Gagosian Gallery. But then also there's the the sort of anti-monumentalism which you've described as a kind of feminist kind of principle of the Mm. work so can you talk about that uh, maybe using that piece for the kitchen as a means of illustrating that sort of anti-monumentalism yeah so I'd like to respond by saying that I'm even maybe a little reticent to call it a feminist approach because I think by questioning uh this compulsion that we have 
as, as people, as, as systems to create this culture out of biology and how we try to determine these constructs through biology uh, doesn't really align and it's not compatible the way that biology is, the way that we interpret that biology. And that was kind of one of the things that I was trying to explore and interrogate is that we have given these gender assignments to our senses and that we have given these very flimsy, erroneous uh, associations and and meaning, I think, falsely creating these these dichotomies around gender identity and, and so on and so forth based on essentially an inability to understand how things work biologically. For instance, uh, we don't know that much about, you know, how smell works. We don't have a ton of data and research. And so we have associated that as feminine. And so that's what I was trying to interrogate with these early microbial works and relating it to, you know, how odor it seems to confound us and somehow we've labeled that as feminine. And so there's just a number of layers and, and sort of like a kind of a convex argument happening there. And so immediately then it becomes labeled as a feminist approach, which I think I was trying to kind of move away from the gendered uh, assignment around biological uh, conditions and drives. And so here we have yet again, language does entangle us in these ways of us trying to understand and yet moving further away from the point maybe. And then you asked about uh, the monumentality. Uh, certainly this work is ephemeral at best. Uh, it's not meant to last. It's meant to be experiential. It's supposed to ground you in the present because when people are in a room together, something biochemical takes place. There's an exchange. There's a risk that we uh, experience. And each time we take a breath of air into our lungs, there's risk. And there's risk in being in the room with each other and not with just other humans, but other organisms. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, just trying to be aware of and to illuminate is this space that we inhabit, that we share, it's loaded with so much risk and there's so much life and there's so much death and there's a lot going on in a very imperceptible, quiet moment. And of course, that must have been brought home to you. It must have been really astonishing to you, actually, at the outset of the pandemic when you'd made works literally involving quarantine tents five years before. And suddenly here you were sort of seeing so many of those concerns that you were dealing with in the work and the idea of mm. our fear of contagion and yet its ever presence in our lives. It must have been strange to, on the one hand, have all your thoughts confirmed and yet be in a very real situation at the same time. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I have to say, you know, I'm not unique in having these thoughts. I think that anyone who is remotely you know, attending to biological forces on the planet is keenly aware of pathogens and, and, and viruses and that this is the stuff that creates the biodiversity on the planet. Again, I think that we tend to take these biological forces, we internalize them and interpret them in these cultural ways 
that are not helping us, especially when we think about like an immunological relationship to life. Um, there's this self, non-self, this othering that we perpetuate as human beings, this this need to eradicate that which is a foreign element. And that comes from um, how we interpret the immune system expelling the other, the foreign agent. And so it's been interesting to observe and witness how we as social beings, how we interpret what's happening to us biologically, what's happening to the planet and, and seeing these molecular, subatomic, biological forces taking place in the way that we interpret it and how we immediately seize on threat and extinguishing and expelling and isolation. Again, I'm just seeing more examples of resisting our true nature as natural organisms, and it's not helping. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I'm going to say this artist because this has had a lasting impression on me from, I guess, for quite some time. But I would say someone like Rosemary Trockel, the work that she has done, this German artist. I think when artists are pioneering ideas, they give you permission to say, listen, this is allowed. This too can be art. That can be art where previously no one had really gone there before and no one's really excavated that territory. So I would say a lot of it is just pulling it back and saying this too can be art, that too can be art. And it's different than something like science, right? Not everything can be science and you have to really validate it. And and with art, it's a much more nebulous space and in a way much more difficult space in some ways. And, and so for artists to be able to pioneer new ideas, new territory for what art can be and what can constitute art, it's very generous. I'm pleased that you said Rosemary because she's somebody who, as you say, that, that sort of idea of permission or, or liberation through other artists, that one of the things about her is she'd never had a style. So she seemingly can pull any material from anywhere and it can somehow be used in productive ways. And it seems to me that that's very common with the way that you use materials too. Yes, and but I also felt like there was some kind of whole human being at work here. That's the impression that I got through her work. I didn't know much about her biography or anything like that, but there, it felt like there was a, a very accessible person thinking through these very nuanced, sensitive complex ideas and her work doesn't strike me as art with a capital A and that's what I loved about it because I think that prior to my engagement with her work you know I think that maybe as a very young person as a young impressionable person I had ideas about art having to be so monumental maybe <laughs> you know and and having these these grand gestures and these big ideas and I experienced something in Rosemary Trockel's work that felt accessible to being alive in nothing special and not having to articulate the deepest 
most important statements about existence, and the registry was on such a、um, I want to say like it tapped into my nervous system. Her nervous system spoke to my nervous system, and it's resonated for for decades. And I just liked her quiet tremors. That's a lovely way of putting it. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Without a doubt, Isamu Noguchi. I would say that <laughs> when I'm stuck and I'm lost, I will look at his work, and it's a guiding principle, north star. There, I've said it. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because I was going to talk to you anyway about the the hanging pieces, the aerobes that were moving around the turbine hall, for instance.、Mm. There's an obvious connection there, but tell me about what it is about about his work because I'm assuming that you mean in the Akari works, but you might mean more broadly. <laughs> I would say in his approach to formal relationships, I'm absolutely possessed by his formal language. And I'm not just talking about the Akaris. Obviously, that's just like the one singular sort of homage that I've responded directly from me to his work. But his entire body of work is absolutely staggering, and he makes materials come alive for me. I'm not a very strong material artist, and that sounds like an absolute contradiction, if not. Outright lie. Because, <laughs> I have to say, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Yeah. Well, I think I'm interested in materials that can't be seen by the the human eye. I'm interested in a kind of materialism through chemical processes, through a certain kind of a gravitational process, and not necessarily material for the sake of material and having them be these autonomous elements that are just. There for the sake of being there, they need to be activated. They need to be in symbiosis with other elements. I wanted to ask you about Ava Hesse, and I wondered if she had been an important figure for you. I have to say, I don't actively think about her at all, and I don't know why, because it's an obvious logical connection. But you know, when I was making work in the early years. People were throwing out all kinds of connection to me: Eva Hesse,、uh, Joseph Boys,、mm. Matthew Barney, and I hadn't thought about them at all. In fact, I had zero knowledge about their work, and so I think that speaks to a lot of cultural and historical zeitgeist, and that you know people are thinking about materials in similar ways, but they don't necessarily have to be directly influenced by previous works. Um, I didn't go to art school, so I don't have this immediate index of art at my disposal where I'm thinking, "Oh, this," you know, and and sort of these kind of categorical taxonomies that I can reference as like a mental Dewey decimal system <laughs> of, "Okay, this is that." That I'm not that sharp, and I don't. That is not something that I have in the mental bank, and I kind of. Felt in the early years that that was probably a huge hindrance, but in hindsight, it was incredibly liberating because I wasn't looking too much at art in order to see where I can go, but also it didn't guide where I was going. Let's talk about contemporary artists. You've already mentioned Rosemary Trockel. Which other contemporary artists do you admire? Oh, there's so many. You know, I'm a huge fan of Arthur Jaffa. 
I always struggle when people ask me what other artists do you like because it's not that I don't love other artists. It's just that I don't have their names on the top of my my thinking often. It's somewhere probably deep in my veins somewhere, and I'm appreciating them in a vascular sense <laughs> <laughs> while their names escape me. <laughs> like, um, well, maybe I can name one that I'm interested in talking to you about. Sure. Just because of, of the sort of material processes and particularly in relation to cooking. So Rikrit Tiruvanesia was an artist who, when I saw your work, I thought of Rikrit's work and the way that it takes, you know, that sort of social environment in which it occurs, but also the connection with cooking, with foodstuffs. Did that in any way figure in, in the way that you began approaching your work? I think that I love Rikrit's work. I think that all of these artists, you know, especially Rikrit, they paved the way for artists like me to exist. So I'm absolutely in gratitude, absolutely grateful that they have done the work and created this space because I don't know that I could exist without these precedents and being able to have a conversation and opening up the permission, as I said before, that, that this space is allowed and, and I, as a younger artist, could just run around and do all of these things. That's a huge, huge privilege and gift. And so while I may not have been actively thinking about Rickrit's work, I think it is absolutely in the zeitgeist. It's embedded in the ecosystem. And this is where there's so much more freedom and liberation for younger artists to take it somewhere even further. And that's what we're doing, is that we're creating spaces for more ideas to generate more dialogue and discourse to take place, more freedom, less fear about what things can or can't be. I'm hoping that I too can offer that for younger artists or even mid-career and older artists that might be struggling you know, to carve out space, like what's possible. That's what we're trying to do is to create what's possible. And that's not easy to do, I have to say. I think that we can also you know, talk in very lofty ways, very prescriptive ways. But what does that even mean in the real world? And I don't want to go on <laughs> a rant, but you know, you have to shut everything out. You have to have an incredible amount of discipline to kind of go counter to the demands of a very global capitalistic world that says you need to be on time and that you need to have these deadlines and you need to be under budget and you need to, you know, be exceedingly productive and yet somehow magically against all odds of physics have almost like, you know, an encapsulated out of this world experience to be able to resist all of the, the forces that are keeping those impulses suppressed and it takes a tremendous amount of, I think, discipline. I know that sounds very unromantic and unglamorous, but I'm beginning to realize day in and day out in terms of existence and relationship and my relationship to my practice, I think discipline, it's, you can't do without it. I'm really fascinated by the idea of what your studio is like mm -hmm. seeing the work instantly makes me think about the studio as a space for experimentation as almost as a laboratory but what do you have pinned to the mm. wall what do you have around you in the studio as you're making work oh we have those 
dry erase boards <laughs> with a lot of <laughs> a lot of scribbling notes or culturing some algae, trying to keep it alive for a project. We have lots of plants. We have a lot of fragrances around. We have a comfortable, cozy space. <laughs> but does it have to have a certain sort of almost laboratory-like? identity in order to make sure that the projects sort of come to fruition in a kind of scientific way. Yeah, I mean, when you say laboratory, I think I know what you mean in that we have a lot of, you know, experiments that are taking place either in petri dishes or, you know, vitrines or in bioreactors. And so, yeah, I mean, you might see some equipment and some, um, you know, materials that you might see in a science laboratory, something like that. Yeah, we share a lot of the same language and a lot of the same, you know, experimental tools. So I have a, a big workshop and we do a lot of experiments and, and we play. And so <laughs> it does look interesting in there. Sometimes I forget that it might be interesting because sometimes I just think, okay, we just need to do these trials and are they working? And then you see all of these sort of like trials in mid process. And I guess it's, there's a lot going on. You've very intriguingly mentioned that mind maps are a kind of crucial part of your practice. And so is that what's filling those whiteboards that you're talking about? Lots of mind maps. Oh, I'm addicted to mind maps. (laughs) The sheer volume of data that we work with. I mean, the sheer volume of data that any average human being in, on this planet has to absorb and how it just filters through. How does anybody keep track of any information <laughs> without mind maps? And so mind maps really help because there's a lot of scholarship that the studio engages with and also, quite frankly, produces. And that's not necessarily the work itself, that I want to put out there in the world, but it is something that we are constantly, let's face it, trafficking in a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of trials. And so mind maps help to organize the chaos, organize the multitude of overlapped sort of thinking that it helps to contextualize and and articulate visually all of the sort of symbiotic connective tissue between these different sections of thought and projects and ideas. And it just helps to organize that. And and it helps to also create more offshoot ideas. (laughs) So it's very generative. I was going to say it sort of deepens the complexity, but also harnesses the complexity, right? It does. It's It's a wonderful, active, living tool. It just keeps moving. And if you look at it, it'll just start splintering even more. Uh, But then it also can sort of pause things loosely. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 100 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Now on the app are guides to Fulcrum Arts, an institution that champions work at the intersection of art and science, including through its Fulcrum Festival, and Arctober, the annual architecture and design month in New York City. 
Another recent addition is The Kitchen, the legendary experimental multidisciplinary venue on West 19th Street in New York, where, as we've heard, Anarchy Yee had an important show in 2015. On the guide to The Kitchen, you can explore its past, present and future, with archival features, information about current programming and details of its future transformation, in which it will retain its rugged patina, as it says, but improve its technical support for artists and its accessibility. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? The Noguchi Museum in Long Island (laughs) City. I, I mean, I sort of make my pilgrimage every few weeks. Again, when I feel stuck and lost, I just go to that museum. You know, I love going to the New York City museums, you know, the Whitney, the Guggenheim, MoMA. These are absolute treasures. If you live in New York City, they're in your backyard. Go. You know, these are gardens that are fertile and they will almost always be a generative experience for anyone who goes. There's no way you can waste any time. The Met, the Natural History Museum, all of it. I know that sounds rather cliche, and and at this point, maybe it seems like too obvious, but these are some of the greatest living museums in the world. Um, In London, we have a dedicated science museum. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, are there any scientific institutions that are sort of frequently on your map? Or is is the Natural History Museum the kind of obvious place to go? That's an obvious place. I'm very fortunate to be able to visit active working scientists' laboratories and see what they're working on. I think I really relish that because the scale is so personalized. I even really love seeing how each individual section of a lab is customized with their own personal subjective flair and seeing how people work with the elements. And, you know, I've I've always wondered why there was no natural light in some of these laboratories. And I think that when you do have natural light, what does that do to your lab mentality? I know that for uh, certain logistical reasons, you can't have daylight streaming in, but I'm interested in those kinds of spaces and, and that negotiation between interior and exterior and how it affects the work that can be done in the the mindset. So I love visiting laboratories up at Columbia, at different universities uh, downtown. There's a great lab at SVA, uh, the School of Visual Arts, and it's always super exciting. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I mean, 9-11 was, I think that that cultural experience was, well, it changed everything. And in some ways, It allowed us to see the way things really are. And then it quickly masked what was going to take place in response to what happened. So I think we started to see a lot of performance and a lot of theater around these kinds of global events. And I think that that's really altered and shaped our reality in immeasurable ways, the way we gain information. And that's after 9-11, I think the internet really started gaining traction. And then the concept of a 
our news cycle really gained momentum where people just wanted the news all day and night. And the news and that kind of information also had to have a spin, had to have a perspective, had to have some kind of subjective take. I think what I'm trying to say is that information became the most desirable commodity for information's sake. And I think it's altered the planet as we know it. And of course, you know, there's a, a brilliant Korean philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, who writes so exhaustively about how information has completely eradicated, I mean, it's taken over memory and our consumption of information has eliminated any need for truth anymore because it's just, we're surfing off of a cascade of information and it, it creates a reality based on suspense and surprise, but you need constant stimulation from that information. So I would say in recent memory, that cultural event, that political event has, has really opened the floodgates for where we're at now in terms of our relationship to information, how it's just dominated our existence. And also in terms of migration, which obviously is an issue that you've explored in your work, obviously the conditions for the treatment of the other, and you've alluded to it a bit earlier in our conversation, in the form of the pathogens as a metaphor, I guess. That has been a very consistent element of your work, even if it's not in a, a sort of sloganeering sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to be migrants with, you know, the rise of climate crisis. And it's something that I think about a lot in recent years. To me, it seems like a very organic evolutionary process, but how we're handling who gets in and who doesn't, that's obviously deeply problematic. And I think it speaks to so many inequities and hierarchies, you know, as mass migration will be on the rise. I think it, it also speaks to the sort of breakdown of these nation states, you know, that in concept and theory seem as robust as ever. But in practice, you know, these borders are very porous and they should be. And that you know, that nation states ultimately is a class structure. You know, you either come from a first world country or a developing world country and you get treated accordingly. I don't want to go on a theoretical rant about like transnationalism, but <laughs> it's very much tied to these questions of mass migration. And we do really need to start thinking about like creating new systems to accommodate this breakdown of these seemingly autonomous nation states as migration becomes much more fluid. And that's something I'm thinking about currently with my practice and work and projects and things like that. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? I'm a huge fan of John Ashbery, huge fan. You've used lots of quotes from his work as titles, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I read him when I was a young person. And I feel like the writers you read when you're young, they really stick with you in ways that kind of come out, <laughs> whether you like it or not. It's something about, you know, the famed abstraction of his poetry, and the sort of, on the one hand, the kind of the generousness of the language, but also that kind of the mystery of the language to a certain extent. I see a lot of that in your work. 
I think the mystery is definitely a connective tissue, especially when you're talking about feelings. What I love about his writing is that he gave such an abstract quality to feelings. And, you know, some great literature really isolates and pinpoints so precisely that which is hard to capture, you know, a feeling. How do you capture that in words and language and sensibility? And I feel like Ashbury goes the opposite direction, this kind of impossibility to try to capture and rather kind of like create this almost like alternate fantasy space that where feelings can just be anything and be these, you know, surreal space. And to me, that made feelings so much more interesting rather than, oh, you're supposed to feel one way, sad or depressed or happy or joy. Like he gave such a broad spectrum to how thoughts and feelings could inhabit. It was so liberating. I'm trying to imagine how I felt when I first read his poetry, when I was maybe like in high school or something and thinking, this is my entire world right now because it makes feelings so much more interesting than I've ever felt before. You know, these, these, these little vignettes that he would create. And I thought that's aspirational as a human being. Like this is what we're here to do. And tell me about how you choose those fragments that become the titles, because is, is it something that you'll read and just jot down in a notebook or, or is it more sort of programmatic than that? I think that, you know, the work that I borrowed uh, for the title uh, in the kitchen show, I think that I came back to it a number of times and I thought, mm, I don't know, I have to argue against my better judgment and see if this will, you know, make the cut. And I kept coming back to it, I thought, because it's a really, really, it's a famous poem. And, you know, the work has to live up to something, you know. And I thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I just kept deliberating if I could give myself permission to make this association. And I, I thought that this was, you know, it's pretty ambitious, this project with the microbes and the samples and the, the genetic material gathering the process, and then also the quasi-fictional super bacteria I was hoping to engage and grow in culture. And I thought, yeah, grabbing at newer vegetables, that seems... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we're not making it worse, are we? <laughs> <Like>? <laughs> yeah, I thought that that was... It struck a, a good chord. I wanted to ask you about Donna Haraway as well. In When Species Meet, you've done a series of works with that title. And that sort of post-human context seems entirely appropriate area as a kind of really fertile area for you to explore. Yeah, I mean, I never read Donna Haraway as post-human and I definitely didn't interpret her work that way. And I certainly wasn't responding in a post-human way. I think that her title, When Species Meet, is absolutely encapsulates the entanglement of how there is no real hard and fast line that let's say Darwin has tried to, you know, articulate in terms of even species is a pretty questionable term that we have. And you can't really contain, you know, a species as being exclusively here and not there. 
And so I think it was such an activation point when you say in an positivist way, rather than saying, no, you know, we are not these tidy contained species. But when she says, when species meet, that to me is so, it's very cheeky, you know, it's very like, here's what happens instead of saying, well, no, we got it wrong. You know, like, I mean, and I think that that's where, you know, great thinkers and educators and philosophers can actually correct thinking by adding something new that it feels entirely like a new discovery rather than debunking the past, which by virtue it is doing. In the turbine hall, that kind of idea of a kind of positive nature of that kind of territory very much came across because it felt like we were coexisting with these non-human species, that somehow it was about an interreliance, and And I felt that very strongly as they moved among us. Yes. I mean, it, it was a, I mean, hopefully like a birthing celebration of this coexistence and a continuation of coexistence with a multitude of different organisms and that machines are here to stay. We need better imagination. We need a, a different relationship that we have yet to explore because of maybe the way that we were onboarded, you know, in the industrial age with machines as something that was supposed to be quite productive rather than something that could be uh, um, an intimate and, let's say, kind and loving relationship with a machine versus something to be exploited for high productive capitalist gain. Let's talk about music. Which music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Well, I love not knowing what has to be cool and what isn't. I like what I like and I don't care about what I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I know everyone is still deeply, deeply self-conscious about being in the know about what is cool and what is it. Lately, I listened to a lot of Rosalia, her album, <laughs> and I love music that is not necessarily Western in its origin. And yet I love that it's not any longer considered world music. That's so liberating, you know, that we can have a number one pop song by Bad Bunny or Rosalia and it's all in Spanish and it's just normalized. It's just music. We don't need to qualify it. So I've been listening to a lot of, you know, Bad Bunny, Rosalia. I listen to a lot of Brazilian music. And I mean, I love hip hop. You know, I listen to Kodak Black, Gucci Mane. I mean, I like music, but I, I'm not someone who pretends to be like a cool music person. On that subject, you, you actually have that playing while you're, I mean, I, I imagine your work has multiple modes and therefore, and I always ask this question about the kind of different modes of your working and whether different audio is required for different modes, as it were. I often like silence, you know, there's so much noise. And as soon as you, even, you know, like social media, I don't like to put the audio on. If you're looking at Instagram stories per se, I, it's just the flood of audio and the sonic schizophrenia. I turn the audio off, but I also really do like music is like vitamins. 
I mean, they just nourish you. And so at least once a day, I do like to just get that deep hit of some good music. I have to. I want to ask you about a couple of ways in which you've used music in the work. First, the entitles again. There's a NAS tune that you used, which is the original piece is called Is Life's a Bitch, But God Forbid the Bitch Divorce Me. But you swap that around. And this is another aspect which I think maybe is little explored in terms of your work, but a sense of humour, which is like you called you, you sort of flipped it. So it said New York's a bitch, but God forbid the bitch divorce you. And this is this piece with two drier doors, right, which, which you open and stick your head in and then you get these different smells, two different smells. So tell me about that. <laughs> piece and, and why that title first of all that should be a t-shirt in and of itself I mean, we'll, we'll credit nas uh, absolutely <laughs> but it should be a t-shirt all of art and culture it's there for us to respond to it's there for us to engage with it's there for us to <laughs> have a conversation with and and a playful one at that so I appreciate that you're pointing out the humor because it's, it's playful and it's it's meant to be fun. And especially when we're talking about a pretty heavy exhibition where this work was exhibited and installed in, and it was about letting go of deep friendship, deep love. It was about a relationship to New York. It's about marking some time that you've grown together and apart in different versions of yourself seen through New York as you grow into an adult and and as you, you know, friends come and go. It, 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 I mean, it was a deeply personal work and title and inhaling, putting your head into that, that dryer door, into that box, that void, and smelling your trauma, your past, all of this, and yet being able to hopefully close the door and walk away. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the fact that you used a really obscure song by the British New Wave, I guess, that it would be called band, Soft Cell, a great band from the early 80s. They're not that obscure. They were well, yeah, exactly. Well, they feel, it, feels, the it feels like an obscure <laughs> reference to a, today, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'm delighted by it because I love Soft Cell. But, yeah, you used, you used Sex Dwarf <laughs> in your MIT List installation. But is it right that you trimmed out particular fragments of the lyrics? Yeah, I mean, I don't even think the lyrics were really even featured. I think it was more a kind of sonic sample. Were there lyrics in there? I mean, in the in the actual loop? I don't remember actually. But yeah, no, it just it just worked. I don't I don't even remember why I used that to be honest. Um <laughs> No, because now I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there was this undulating floor with the salmon colored carpet and the kombucha leather lab stands. And, and then there was the mentholated pond. I don't remember why I put that there, but I think it kind of worked. It needed something really cold and tantalizing and quite seductive and, but also a little bit punishing. A little bit. <laughs> little dungeon-y. Um. <laughs> Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Yes, meditation. It's the one time of the day that I feel is the most real. It's where I make no judgments about anything. Nothing has to be qualified. Nothing has to be analyzed. Nothing has to be assigned any meaning. It's just observing thoughts feelings, creating a breath of space between the cascade of thoughts and feelings. 
That is what meditation is. Does that happen right at the start of the day or do you do it at different times? It's always best to do it in the morning for me. You know, I try to sneak in 30 second meditation moments if I'm, you know, in a car, the subway, anything like that. But for a, a real concentrated block in the morning is the best time. Otherwise, I do feel a little thrown off and I just really want to qualify that meditation is really just about observing your thoughts and feelings. It isn't about trying to eliminate thoughts because that is impossible. You can't do that. What you want to do is just to create a bit of distance and not give any judgment to what you're thinking or feeling. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? <laughs> oh gosh. You know, I don't mean to be cheeky, but I feel like that work hasn't been invented yet. And I think that I'm probably waiting for that work to arrive soon. I feel like a big seismic shift is going to happen with art and it's going to happen on a very molecular, genetic, subatomic level that it's probably going to terrify us, but I think it's coming. And I think that that's what I'm waiting for. I'm intrigued. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to create that. Some someone, you know, in a basement, some 15-year-old <laughs> is going to unleash this artwork on the world and we're all going to be um, very captivated, I think. <laughs> and lastly, what's art for? Oh, gosh. It's for communication. I know that sounds like the most boring, unsexy response, but that's what art is for. What art can do is inhabit that non-conceptual space, but the way that we relate to art is a way that it binds us together and it creates questions and problems and that enables communication. Art is something that we can't necessarily understand. And so what we try to do is we try to communicate that experience. What is art for? I don't know. I always ask what art wants from us. What does it want from us rather than what can art do for us? What does it want from us? And I haven't really quite figured out what it wants from us. But I do think that sometimes that it wants us to not create more categories of knowledge. Annika, thank you so much. Thank you. Annika Yee is at Gladstone Gallery on 24th Street, New York, from the 6th of October until the 12th of November. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Dan Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Annika Yee. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.